This is Blue Wire. What's going on, everybody? This is Brandon Thorne, and you're listening to the Trench Warfare Podcast presented by Blue Wire. This is episode 14. Today is May 20th, and teams are in OTAs at this point. So really what that means is there's no live contact, but this is the first time that teams are really on the field all together at the same time, the full 90-man roster. So teams really are getting a feel for what they have for the 2019 season. They could take part in 7-on-7, 9-on-7, and 11-on-11 drills at this point. But again, no live contact. So you're, you're not really playing football yet. You're just kind of going through skeleton, basically. You know, with quarterbacks, receivers, backs, skill players, offensive line, defensive line, or more so than anything, getting their steps right, getting their footwork, their technique, things like that. And really a big thing is scheme. There's a lot of install going on. So really, you're getting a good idea from the young guys of how much they can handle, how they're processing that information and taking it to the field. So it's really a valuable time, I think, from a team perspective. The whole offseason is, but specifically for OTAs, it's really the first time that you're getting a look at what you have as a team. So, you know, as cuts begin to come down over the next couple months and you have to narrow these rosters down quite a bit by about 40 players or so, you know, this is a the start of a critical time. And then after the OTAs, it sort of wraps up with a mini camp, a mandatory mini camp at the end that teams generally run that's a few days long. And you sort of uh, put it all together and see what you have. And then, of course, training camp and things like that start after, you know, later on in the year or in the off season. So it's really an important time. And it, it gets me to thinking about some of the offensive linemen that are in these camps it's just it's a really interesting dynamic to look at the different level of opportunities guys have based on where they were drafted and how much they're getting paid which I think those two things are are big determining factors in who makes the final roster and obviously the odds are stacked against guys who are making less and and who got drafted later or who didn't get drafted at all Ideally, you would like to think that the NFL is a metrocracy in terms of guys being, you know, the the best rising to the top regardless of all that other stuff. But I think there's varying levels for all 32 teams on how realistic that is. I think that the best teams generally, it really is a meritocracy and the best can just see the field the most. I think I think of teams like the Patriots who have they've had an undrafted player make the roster, I think, for I don't know, I saw the stat, I think it's like 10 years or so in a row that they've had an undrafted guy make the roster. So you know when you go to certain teams that, you know, I think of the Seahawks when Russell Wilson got there, even though he was, a you know, I think a second or third round pick, third round probably, um, they just gave Matt Flynn that big contract and then still Russell Wilson was just flat out better and they gave him the job. So just, you know, you love to see that with teams and it's encouraging for players as well but it it gets me to thinking about a lot of the offensive linemen that I really pay attention to are guys that are day three picks or undrafted guys who make rosters and not only make rosters but play and start and earn big contracts and you know those type of guys to me really need 
more notoriety because generally offensive line, as we all know, you know, they just they probably get the least amount of notoriety of any other position. But then when you start getting into the weeds of offensive line play, I like to go deep in there really and and expose and reveal even the, the more unknown stories that are down the pike, so to speak, of guys that just don't get talked about. You know, that their backgrounds don't get discussed and broken down to the extent that I think that they should because they're really fascinating and I think you can learn a lot from some of those backgrounds and those stories. So that led me to want to bring on the guest today, which is Buccaneers center Ryan Jensen. Jensen's background is fascinating. I mean, he went to Colorado State Pueblo in Colorado. He grew up there and he was very lightly, if at all, recruited out of high school. He didn't have many offers, but wound up going to CSU Pueblo. Started there as a left tackle, and uh, you know he's six three, six four, about three hundred pounds. So obviously a position switch was in his future. But um, he had played center prior to college, like in high school and youth football. Uh, he played defensive line as well. So you know he, he kind of had that familiarity. But you know, he didn't get invited to the Shrine game, didn't get invited to the Senior Bowl, and didn't get invited to the Combine, and then was a six-round pick. So the odds were were very much stacked against him making it and exceeding that, you know, average career span of, I think it's like three or four years in NFL. So for him to be at the point that he is now is really, it's remarkable. And I just love talking to guys like this because there's there's certainly a level of adversity that they've had to overcome that most guys don't to make it to the NFL and I just like to you know get into that and and talk about it and you know find out what what the guy's makeup is and hear stories and you know I think that that could really benefit a lot of people a lot of players out there who are listening who are younger you know high school youth college and even you know scouts coaches evaluators analysts to hear sort of what it took to get to this level. Obviously, there's there's a lot of uh, timing and luck that's involved with it, but I think, you know, that he, we'd be doing a disservice if we overlooked the amount of hard work, the amount of belief that you have to have to get to this point. And, you know, just to find out how everything played out is really cool. So with that said, we're going to be talking to Jensen here shortly. And again, follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thorne NFL because throughout the off season, throughout the season, I work to search depth charts and rosters for guys who make the final 53, who are overlooked, undrafted, day three type guys. And, you know, I, I try to, to highlight what they do well, you know, which I think in doing that really can reveal to us what has allowed them to get to this point. So, yeah, with that said, we're going to go to our interview now with Ryan Jensen, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy this. All right, everybody. So I'm here with Buccaneers center Ryan Jensen. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is the time of the year where OTAs are obviously starting for most of the teams at this point. Um, I know that there's no contact allowed right now, but you guys are, I believe, going to 7-on-7, 9-on-7, 11-on-11 type stuff. And really, it's the first time that you guys are on the field at the same time as a roster, you know, at this point. So what are OTAs like for you as an offensive lineman and, and sort of what are you 
thinking about and working on at this point in the off season? Yeah, definitely. Uh, OTAs for an offensive lineman. So it's a little different because, uh, like you had mentioned, it's it's not full contact and it's kind of hard to play offensive and defensive line when uh, you're not, uh, you know, going full speed. But it's a great opportunity for, you know, obviously with us having a new offense, new offensive coordinator, uh, to learn that new offense while having defenses in front of you and being able to run actual plays. So that, that's, a, that's a huge thing for offensive linemen, especially younger guys who, uh, you know, may not have ever been in a different offense or anything like that. But also it's, it's great for fundamental work this time of year, you know, working on footwork and, and sets and all that. It's a, a great opportunity to kind of slow down the, the learning and technique work because you're not worried about, you know, game planning for a game and, and stuff like that, you know, where the regular season uh, happens. But no, it's it's hard because obviously it's not full contact, but it's it's still a great tool for guys to get back into a little bit of football shape and get back to uh, mastering their craft. Yeah, absolutely. So, would you say this is where it starts for for you guys as a unit up front to develop sort of the early stages of that chemistry, like specifically with you and your guards? You know, I think of Ali Marpet to your left, and you know, to your right, if it's going to be the same as last year. I'm not sure. I know it's a little bit more open over there, but, uh, you know, can you guys, like you said, when you're working through footwork, do you guys talk about, you know, on like an outside zone play or whatever with different shades and different techniques in front of you, like just how you're going to handle it and, and things like that? Is that sort of some of the topics? Yeah, definitely. It's a uh, big topic on, you know, how are we going to run an ace block? How are we going to do this? You know, what what's your footwork going to be? I have to know that, obviously, and they have to know how my forward is going to be. That way we're not stepping all over each other. And, you know, this time of year is uh, great for getting that, that baseline of of work in and, and, you know, kind of feeling each other out. And, you know, obviously playing with Allie, you know, all last year, you know, we played every snap next to each other. You know, we have a pretty good uh, relationship on how we do things. And, you know, that that's big. And, you know, OTAs are great for just reestablishing that trust and, you know, what's his footwork going to be like, you know, and, and getting back into it. But no, it's, it's definitely uh, important to have that relationship with the guys you're playing next to, how they operate and how they do things, because as an offensive line, it's, it's five guys doing one job and, you know, there are five different jobs in one play, but if everybody's not on the same page and, you know, everybody's not uh, working and doing the things the right way, it's, it turns into a, you know, a really bad play. So, OTAs are definitely a, a time where, you know, you, you learn, you know, obviously, you know, with new coaching staff, we have some different techniques that they're teaching us and, and stuff like that. So it's it's awesome to uh, get that work in. Yeah. And just to go forward with what you're saying about the new coaching staff and things like that, I just think about over your career so far in Baltimore and now in Tampa, I mean, being exposed, I think, to some really good coaching, you know, just in terms of these guys' track records, like I think of Greg Roman, um, who you were playing under in Baltimore. I know he was the run game coordinator and really implementing a lot of the things that you were doing on a week-to-week basis. Um, and now you're going to a guy in Harold Goodwin who is he's, he's pretty well-known, I think, in the offensive line circles. His brother obviously played center and won a Super Bowl with the Saints. I've gotten to talk to to Jonathan Goodwin a couple times, and Harold is a you know a big offensive line guy. Obviously, he's the coach and and also the run game coordinator for you guys. So, are you just now getting exposed to him really for the first time and sort of like what he wants to do? And you know, is or do you have any thoughts on on him so far and, and kind of what he expects from you guys? 
Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, that's where it kind of like phase one and two comes into play where, you know, phase one is literally we're just in there. We're working out for, I think, two hours and then we have an hour of meetings. And that's, you know, really when they introduce the offense and kind of expectations on how he wants things done. And, you know, phase two takes it to the next level where, you know, we're having meetings, we're working out, but we actually get to go out on the field and and start running some individual and, and running, you know, plays on air, which is, is tough sometimes because, you know, I'm a, I'm a visual guy and I want to see the defenders out in front of me and, and this and that, but you're not a, that time of year, you're not allowed to have people out in front of you. So, you know, it, it still sets that, that tempo and how he's going to run individual and how, uh, you know, the things he expects from you, you know, the different ways of, you know, there's, there's more than one way to get a cat. And, you know, every, every offensive line coach teaches little nuances differently, you know, with deuces, with aces, with trays, with outside zone combinations. You know, every every guy has his own little way of doing things, and it's been good. It's been a little bit of a change. There's some different things that I've never done before that, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. And uh, the thing about Goody is he's always he's always talking about, he goes, I want you to try my stuff. But, you know, with older players, he goes, you've, you've stayed in the league for this long. You, you have your little – you have your tricks and stuff too. Feel free to use those, but try to, you know, use this as just another foundation of – to make yourself a better player. And uh, I think that's a, uh, that's a good relationship to have with, uh, you know, your position coach is that kind of a little bit of give and take where he's going to let you be you, but at the same time, he wants you to, you know, work on using his, his technique and, and the way he has things running too. So it's a, it's been a good uh, change for sure. Yeah. I think that's, you know, anytime you can have that freedom, but then also have the ability to add some things to your, your tool bag. You know, I like to say, you know, when, when you have different and more options, you know, when you in the, over the course of a game, I think that can only make you a better player. So that's really cool to hear. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's part of the reason why he has been as successful as he has over, you know, his career as a coach is because of like that philosophy and that approach. So that's, that's good insight there for, for us to have for sure. So that's, a, that's definitely an exciting thing this year to have Goodwin there. And then, you know, just the new staff and, you know, just the, the players there. It's obviously an exciting time to hit the ground running initially at this point, but I wanted to go back a little bit and talk about you and in your career and what has led to this point to where you're at now, entering your second year as the starter with the Bucks, your third year as a full-time starter. You've started all 16 games the past two years, but what people may not know is sort of the journey that you've had to, to go through to get to this point, which is, it's really, it's fascinating. And the odds were stacked against you, I think, more than most people or most offensive linemen, you know, that come into the league and establish a career and, and, and start for multiple years. So, you know, I, I was just doing some research and I knew you, you know, you grew up in Colorado. You were very lightly recruited coming out of high school. You know, what was like your, your mindset, you know, when you got to Colorado State Pueblo, I know you played left tackle there. You know, what was your mindset during that time? Did you have aspirations of being in the NFL at that point? in college and you know sort of what was that like for you being so under overlooked the whole time and and how has that carried with you to today yeah definitely it's uh it's always funny when uh we go back it seems so long ago you know i was like close to 10 years now coming out of high school i was all a six foot three like 215 220 pounds and you know like you like you mentioned really lightly recruited and had two scholarship offers, one to CSU Pueblo for $2,000 and one to Western State, which is in Gunnison there in Colorado, uh, for like 1500 bucks. And 
honestly, like when I graduated high school, I started working for my uncle who owns his own uh, roofing company. And it almost made me not go to college because I was 17 years old, you know, bringing in some pretty good, pretty good chunk of change every two weeks. And I'm like, oh, you know, this isn't too bad of a life, but I'd already signed my letter of intent. And my mom is actually the one who's like, no, you signed your, your letter of intent. You're going to go to school for, you know, at least your, your freshman year. And if you don't like it, you know, then you have three months to start taking over all your bills and that's your choice. So inevitably I, I went to school uh, my freshman year and ended up starting as a true freshman playing left tackle at about 235 pounds. And uh, at that point, uh, you know, it was just, I was just hanging on to, you know, in, in aspects of playing, I was just out there holding on to my butt. Uh, I think that's where a lot of what you see on film with me is my effort. I needed that because I was so undersized that I, I literally had to out effort guys to be successful and graduated through high school or through college. My sophomore year, I got up to about 260. My junior year, I was about 290. And then my senior year, finally, I, I broke that 300 pound mark. I was about 310. And really, when I never really thought I would make it to the NFL, honestly, you know, from a D2 school. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, at first, I really wasn't my, that wasn't really a dream of mine because I honestly didn't think I was going to be able to attain that. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'll go play football for, uh, uh, you know, four years and get a degree and, and go on with my life and, and get skinny again and, <laughs> and, and, you know, and do it that way. And my junior year came around and I just gotten out of class and I was going to the facility to go watch some, watch some film. And there was a, a college scout from Miami that was there and they were looking at our quarterback at the time, you know, and I walked in there and he was having issues with the, the film system. And he's like, Hey, can you help me do this? And I got it set back up for him and they're watching. And they go, Hey, are you the left tackle? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's me. And uh, he goes, okay, well, you got a, you got a legitimate shot. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, if you, if you keep playing the way you play, you know, you're going to have a, a, a great shot to even just get a tryout in the NFL. And it was kind of at that point, my offensive line coach came to me, uh, Chris Simonton, who he actually coached TJ Lang and, and college at Eastern Michigan Oh wow. uh, came in and he goes, you, you got a, uh, you got a, a legit shot. And at that point, when he told me that, like, it, it changed my mindset on things. I, you know, I was riding dirt bikes. I had this is funny because I, I had to sell my dirt bike because I wasn't going to work between my junior year and my senior year of college. And that was what my parents said. They go, if you're not going to work, you got to, you got to sell your bike to pay for your living <laughs> expenses. So I sold my bike, went into my senior year, you know, played really, really great. And then, you know, that whole process after that was, was crazy. Ended up getting drafted in the sixth round, picked 203 by Baltimore and you know it was it was kind of, it was like a dream come true at that point, and it got crazy as you mentioned after that. Yeah, and before that, before you got drafted, I mean, even then, still the odds obviously were. I, I know the odds are against everybody for making the NFL. I think like one percent of what, like D one or one percent of high school players make it, and then one percent of D one or something like that. You're D two, and then you didn't get invited to the Shrine Game or the Senior Bowl or the Combine, so. I mean, I, I don't know how many guys who have started. I think you have 41 career starts right now through five years. I wonder how many guys have that or more who were in a situation like you, D2, and not going to any of those sort of all-star type circuits. You know, I'm sure the list is very small. And then you get drafted, you know, to Baltimore in the sixth round. Most day three picks don't work out in the NFL. But, I mean, so, you know, it's amazing. And then, you know, you get to Baltimore. I, I believe you got 
cut once, right, and then brought back on the practice squad? Yeah, so my rookie year, I actually I broke my foot like the third day of training camp, and they kept me on the active roster all year. Um, and then the second year, I came in and ended up getting cut after after camp, and they brought me back on the practice squad for my second year. And then with two games left in, in my, my sophomore campaign, they uh, activated me with two games left, so I didn't get a credited season. And that kind of, at the time, it kind of made me mad because obviously, you know, affects the salary and for the next year, but uh, it actually worked out in the best way possible for me. Then my third year, I came in, made the team, uh, ended up starting uh, six of the last seven games of that year at left guard, and it was playing pretty well. Then coming into my fourth year, you know, I thought I was going to have a legitimate shot at, at competing for the left left guard spot, and you know they. I don't want to say they didn't give me a chance to really compete there, but they kind of didn't give me a chance to compete there. And uh, they ended up drafting a kid. They uh, drafted Ronnie and Alex Lewis, you know, and they started the left side for the first couple of games. And so my fourth year kind of started off not actually not too bad. I started four for the first six games. And then after the bye week, I, I came back and I got benched and I was inactive the rest of the year with really no explanation. Um <laughs> which is, was kind of kind of crazy. And but then coming into my fifth year with Baltimore, you know, they said, Hey, we want you to be the, we want you to be the center. We want to, we want a bigger center. And uh, that's kind of what they wanted. Uh, Greg wanted, they wanted a, a bigger, more broody offensive line for, for his system. And, uh, you know, I fit the bill and ended up coming in and, and playing, uh, you know, pretty good football. And then obviously getting signed by Tampa after, after my fifth year. So it's been, it's been a crazy ride. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and you know, you mentioned Greg Roman getting in there. I mean, that's when I first really started watching you and I think really, I mean, any Greg Roman type of offense and and running game specifically is fun to watch and when you have guys in there like you and Yonda and and Stanley, I mean, I felt like it fit your skill sets really well and and just the things that he asked you to do, you know, the amount of misdirection and a lot of counters, uh, pin pull, um, you know, traps and things like that. I felt like really allowed you to, you know, get out in space, get on guys, you know, in, in that sort of way that I, I thought fit you really well. But, you know, and that allowed you to, you know, obviously succeed. You started all 16 games that year. And, you know, before we move on past Baltimore, what was it like for you playing alongside Marshall Yonda and, you know, a guy who obviously has a strong case to be a Hall of Famer one day? Was there anything that you picked up from him that you still think about or, you know, any sort of impact that he had on you that you can talk about? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it's it's always funny. When I when I first came into the league and uh, Juan Castillo was our offensive line coach at that time, and he goes – he was, he was talking to me. He goes, you know, you're athletic and, and this and that. He goes, kind of watch Yonda, but don't watch Yonda. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it took me a while to understand what he, what he meant by that. And after watching, you know, playing with Yonda for five years and, and watching what he does on the field, it, it all it all made sense because he does things that guys shouldn't be able to do. It doesn't make any sense. You know, he gets his feet, he like in, in pass protection, he'll get his feet crossed up and he'll stone guys on one foot and – it, it doesn't make sense, but that's just that's just Yonda. He's got that that Iowa farm boy strength, and it's just he's so gifted in in his skill set. It's it's amazing watching what he does, and you know. But there, there's a lot of things I did learn from from Marshall, and that's 
you know, sometimes more important things about uh, learning how to be a pro and kind of watching how he conducts himself throughout the day and throughout the game week and, and stuff like that. You know, he just, he taught me, you know, what it takes to, you know, maintain that high level of play and, you know, keeping your nose on the, on the grinding stone and, and, and stuff like that. And for Yonda, you know, I, I think he's, he should be a clear cut, you know, hall of fame guy just with what he's done with his career. It's, it's been, it's been amazing, but yeah, he, it, it was, it was awesome. Unfortunately, uh, my last year, I only got to play uh, one and a half games with him next to me when, while I was playing center because he ended up getting rolled up in the second game and breaking his ankle and was out for the year. But, you know, he was still around and, and in the room and, and helping mentor the, the younger guys. So that's, that's just something uh, that's who Yonda is. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, I love hearing that about about guys like that. I mean, there's not a lot of guys like Yonda who have a career like him, so definitely asking about that is, is, is insightful just to see kind of what makes him special. And, yeah, he is very unique. And But, yeah, I figured there was something there about his longevity I don't think is a coincidence. So being able to learn how to be a pro like him and, you know, work ethic and study habits, things like that. So that's really cool. And, I mean, after Baltimore, you know, you started all 16 games for the first time in your career. Then you're a free agent and you go to Tampa, you get – the highest contract in, in NFL history, I believe, for a center. So, I mean, that's totally full circle from what we were just talking about uh, as far as, you know, you being a six foot three, 215-pound defensive lineman in high school to this point, you know, where you signed that contract in Tampa. So that's an incredible uh, journey there. And then in Tampa last year, you know, just, just watching you and everything, just in general, the way you – what got my attention about your game is – is really just how how nasty you are on the field. Really, that's what it is. I mean, I mean the way you fight every snap. I mean, I was going back and looking at some of the highlights that I posted on Twitter, and I mean, I mean it's going like there's almost fights, you know, almost every snap just because you know <laughs> you're getting under guys' skin a little bit. And like, where does that come from? And you know, just can you talk about your style because it really jumps out, and there's not a lot of guys really that play with that edge that you play with. But I think it it wears on defenders over the course of the game and it, it could probably get in some guy's head, I would imagine. But you know, what, where does that come from for you? Yeah, I think a lot of that honestly comes from, uh, you know, I was talking about earlier when I was a, a true freshman playing left tackle at 235 pounds and, you know, my effort and, and, and nastiness is all I, all I had. And um, I give a lot of credit to my offensive line coach in, in college. He, uh, he, that's the way he taught the game was he wanted guys to be, be nasty and 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 play hard and play through the whistle and play through the second whistle and sometimes play through the third whistle and you know that just that that got ingrained into my into my mind and that's just the way I've always played and it's just that that nasty and he he gave a a great he was talking about his son how his son used to always tap on the at the dinner table he used to always always tap on the table and just kept tapping and kept tapping and kept tapping and it's fine for a little bit and you just kind of ignore it but then it just it just starts wearing on you and then you snap. And that's kind of the way he kind of explained how he wants, that's how he wanted his offensive lineman to, to play against defense guys. He wanted you to keep pushing on them, keep pushing on them, keep pushing on them. And eventually they're going to snap. And, you know, once you get them to snap, that's you've, you've won, you're in their head and, and you, you can do what you want to them now. So it's, that's kind of just the mindset I kind of have is I just, I just, I just keep tapping and keep tapping and keep tapping. And eventually guys are going to snap. And I mean, that's just, that's just the way I've, I've always played. That's how I find enjoyment out of the game is, is to break that will of a, the, the guy I'm going against. And 
that's how what I really find enjoyment in. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I've never heard that, but that's that's really good. Um, you definitely can see that on the on the film when you watch your game. And you know, I, I wanted to to ask you about the opponents that you faced over your career, specifically, really the last two years. I mean, just looking at your schedule the last two years, which I just did. I mean, any interior offensive lineman who starts every game is going to see a bunch of great interior defensive linemen, just because there are so many right now in the NFL. But you know, for you. Is there a couple guys that really stand out as being the toughest that you faced? And if so, what, what made them so hard to go against? Yeah, there's, there's been a couple, uh, you know, obviously in, uh, in playing in Baltimore for, uh, you know, a year, the AFC North got some really good interior, uh, defense alignment. And we went up to Minnesota in 2017 and Linval, uh, Joseph, Joseph was one of the, probably one of the better guys I've played as a, you know, a true, a true shade nose guard. Um, just because of his size and his, his arm length along with his strength. Because what, I, what I've noticed through the years I've played is a lot of times the interior guys that have really long arms, they're not all that strong. And you can kind of break break their arms down and, and get into their body. But with, with Linball, I, I struggled with that because he, he's got that length, but he's also extremely strong. And uh, he, he knows how to use that. And he was definitely one of the, the harder guys I've played in the last couple of years. Um, Obviously, then you have you have the the likes of you know Aaron Donald, who's just a freak, and he can play anywhere on the on the D line. And I played him in 2016. It was actually my first career start. Was it was against oh, him, wow. or 2015 rather? It was was my first career start. I was playing left guard and played against him. And I'd say he got the better of me that that game. Then you got uh, I just blanked on his name. Uh, 97 from the Steelers. Uh, Cam Hayward. Hayward. Yeah, Cam Hayward. You know he's a, he's a great player. Played him, you know, had some good battles with him over the years. Grady Jarrett from Atlanta, you know, getting more into uh, last year. He's he's a really good player and he's an athletic guy. He reminds me a lot of a, a Geno Atkins type. And you know, Geno again, another another great interior lineman from the AFC North. So, seen quite a few uh, guys who are, are top tier interior guys. Right. Yeah. For sure. Those are some great names and. I know Linval Joseph, man, he doesn't, most true shaded nose guards like that don't get a lot of recognition at all, but he's definitely up there with a guy like, you know, like Damon Harrison, Snacks, and, you know, as being those elite guys. Yeah, but that's that's cool to hear that about Linval. He's a guy I've appreciated watching, but, but yeah, I'm, I mean, everything that, you know, you've given us so far, I think this is awesome. And uh, I just I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, you know, I, I love the way you play the game and just, uh, you know, I'm rooting for you to keep, you know, with the success and have a great year in 2019. So, again, just uh, thanks again, man, for, for coming on and doing this. I know a lot of people are going to get value out of this, so I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks. Harry's Razors is helping Blue Wire listeners with a better shaving experience. Go to harrys.com slash bluewire to save $10 on a value trial set, which includes five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Enough with the cheap razors. Go to Harry's now. It's just $3 for our loyal listeners. Harry's has fixed shaving by combining a simple, clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for razors that were overpriced and overdesigned. Harry's bought a world-class blade factory in Germany that's been making quality blades for over 95 years. Join the 10 million who have tried Harry's. 
claim your trial offer by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. All of Harry's blades come with a 100% quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your razor for $3.